Well, if you were here a few weeks ago, you knew that I was supposed to be here, and I wasn't. Um, I had a little incident called a TGA, which stands for Transient Global Amnesia. And it's transient because it's over fairly quickly, it's global because it affects everything, and it's amnesia because you forget who you are, where you are, what's going on. It's like you're in the middle of this crazy dream. And uh, you only last for a few hours. I've had a few of them in my life, but the last one was 14 years ago. Never thought it would happen again. But when this happened at 7.30 a few weeks ago on Sunday morning, um, after Catherine realized what was going on, she said, I think I need to call Brian and tell him you won't be there today. <laughs> so this is not the message from that Sunday. That one just is left in history. This is the next one in our series in Hebrews. This is uh, from chapter 12. There we go. Um, and a message that I've given the title, Come to the Mountain. It's what the text is about. Coming to the mountain where we meet God. Now, I'll bet that everybody here has a favorite mountain memory or mountain picture. Um, this is one of my very favorites. Uh, it's not that great a photo, but the occasion was amazing. We were in Peru. We were there every year serving Wycliffe Bible translators. We'd been in the jungle. We were going up to a little town in the Andes. We took a little single-engine plane. And I didn't know single-engine planes could fly that high. But we flew over the Andes and right by Huascaran. It's the tallest mountain in Peru. If you know Mount Whitney in California, tallest uh, mountain in the lower 48, Huascaran is over 50% higher than Mount Whitney. It's several thousand feet higher than Denali in Alaska. And our little plane was flying right by the face of Huascaran because we needed to get down to Huaraz, which is at the base of the mountain. Uh, I had the plane was bouncing up and down, and uh, I wanted to get a picture, and this wasn't in the days of, this wasn't now with smartphones where you can go click, click, click and hope for something. I had a film camera, one shot, my hands going like this, and uh, I got one shot, and this was it. It's not even cropped. That's just the way it came out. Such a great memory. Um, but most of the time, Waskaran looked like this. This is like what we saw every morning when we woke up. Beautiful place. So when we think of meeting God on a mountain, maybe it's a picture like this that comes to mind for you. The author of Hebrews gives us two pictures in our section today. And... They are penetrating pictures, thought-provoking pictures. And I give them to you so that you might investigate your own view of what it means to come to the mountain and meet God. The first mountain he describes, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 12, is Mount Sinai. Now, Sinai is 
not described by name, but everybody knew what he was talking about. So, um, as you know, the book of Hebrews was written to people who knew their Old Testament. And when this description unfolded, there was no question in anyone's mind what he was referring to. This was Mount Sinai, the place of Moses, the place of the Ten Commandments, the place of rumblings and lightning. And I give you this picture. Now, this is not Mount Sinai. This is Mount Doom from Mordor in Middle Earth. It's not what Sinai looks like, but in all seriousness, I would suggest to you that it's what Sinai felt like. Look at the description that we're given, starting in verse 18. It's a place of blazing fire. Not just a brush fire, but a God-inspired fire. It's a, it's a place of, of darkness and gloom. So dark you can hardly see my red print. Uh, it's a place of darkness and gloom. This godly darkness that came over everything and caused people to tremble. It was a place of violent storm. Uh, many of our English translations use the word tempest at this point in the translation. A God-inspired storm. And there was a trumpet there, but not a beautiful trumpet like we might hear on Sunday morning here at church, but a terrifying trumpet caused your blood to be chilled. And then, most sobering of all, there was a voice. A voice. God's voice. And it was disconcerting, to say the least. What we read is, it was a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. This was not a pleasant experience. In fact, it unsettled people so much when they heard God's voice coming from Mount Sinai that they said, stop, don't speak to me anymore. Wow. That's a hard picture, isn't it? And I wonder how you, how you feel about it. Is it hard to think of a mountain like that to meet God? Uh, you wouldn't be alone. Do you know uh, the name uh, Christopher Hitchens? He's a philosopher, author who died about 10 years ago. By his own self-description, he's not an atheist, someone who simply doesn't believe in God. He described himself as an anti-theist someone who is against the very idea of God. Uh, let me read you something Hitchens wrote. I think it would be rather awful if it was true that there is a God. If there was a permanent, total, round-the-clock divine supervision and invigilation of everything you did, you would never have a waking or sleeping moment when you weren't being watched and controlled and supervised 
by some celestial entity from the moment of your conception to the moment of your death, it would be like living in North Korea. I think that Hitchens' idea of who God is was that not that dissimilar from the picture of Mount Doom. So what do we do with this? We read verse 18, the very first words. You have not come to this mountain. You have not come to this mountain. God saw fit to reveal himself that way at that point in history. But history did not stop then, and his self-revelation did not stop then, and he, began, he continued to show more and more and more of himself. And to have our vision of the mountain where we meet God defined by Sinai simply isn't the right way to see God anymore. That's what the author is saying a part of the picture, but only the beginning. So if, if people haven't come to this mountain, why does the author to Hebrews even talk about it? And I think the answer is simple. He talks about it because this is what's in people's heads. They are students of the Old Testament. When they think mountain where I meet God, they think Sinai. And he's saying, not anymore. And I believe the Holy Spirit wants to speak through this today to us because our visions of God and our thoughts of meeting him on the mountain are shaped by pictures of Sinai and Mount Doom. But just as it was true for the congregation to whom Hebrews was originally written, so it is for us. We have not come to this mountain. So, to what mountain have we come? Well, he tells us right away, verse 22. He says, we've come to Mount Zion. But not the Mount Zion you can find on Google Maps. This is the real mountain. The truest of true places to meet God. It's not a physical place in the same way that Sinai was, though it's a real place, the most real of all. So even though it's not got mountain peaks and so on, I'm going to give you a little sketch with mountains in the background as we as we fill out what he says about Mount Zion this place where we do meet God look at what he says about it he says Mount Zion this place to which you come is the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem the same place that's talked about in the book of Revelation. The new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God. The place where God dwells with his people. 
the place of no more crying or mourning or pain, for the old things have passed away. This is where we come. And we come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Tens of thousands of those majestic beings celebrating. Celebrating God, the living God, who makes all things new. What else? We come to Mount Zion, which includes the assembly of the firstborn. Those who are enrolled in heaven. In the NIV, it says those whose names are written in heaven. That's, that's the idea here. This is talking about followers of Jesus Christ, those who trust in him. <laughs> you know the term firstborn? Everywhere else in the New Testament, it refers to Jesus. This is the only place where it refers to the children of God. But the followers of Jesus are given the privilege of carrying the title of Jesus. And this is too is part of Mount Zion, where we come to meet God, to the assembly of the firstborn. And to God, the judge of all. Now, as soon as you saw that, some of you immediately had pictures of Sinai, didn't you? God, the judge of all. But may I remind you what Jesus said in John chapter 5? He said, the one who hears my word and believes him who sent me does not come into judgment. Passed from death to life. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not talking about us being judged. Judging can include that, though it doesn't for the believer but one of the main purposes of a judge, this is true of the judges in the Old Testament, and almost every time the word judge is used in the New, it's talking about someone who makes things right. And don't you want somebody to make the world right? We live in such a messed up place with so much pain and so much chaos. And God, the living God, who makes all things new, one day will make all things right. Who else is at Mount Zion? The spirits of the righteous made perfect. Most people think this is a reference back to chapter 11, the heroes of faith. Remember Moses and Rahab, Abraham, Sarah, uh, so many great a people of faith. At the end of chapter 11, it says, none of them received what was promised. And it would only be that together with us, who are followers of Jesus, that they would be made perfect. But now, they are made perfect, complete. It's the place, Mount Zion is the place of all people of all times who have been followers of our God, trusting in Jesus, though it was quite shadowy for thousands of years. It's they who are in Mount Zion. And who else? Well, this is like the very best of the best now. At Mount Zion, we meet Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. 
A, a covenant is a way that, that two parties are brought together that have been estranged. And God and humanity are brought together by the one who is both God and man. He's the mediator of the new covenant. The covenant of grace, of mercy, forgiveness, kindness, eternity. And finally, when we come to Mount Zion, we come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. The context there is a better word than the blood of Abel that had been poured out on the ground and spoke a word of condemnation. But the sprinkled blood doesn't speak a word of condemnation. It speaks the word of cleansing. This is Mount Zion. This is the mountain where we meet God. And maybe this picture would help you. Instead of Mount Doom, something from the Austrian Alps, a picture of the living God, the celebrating angels, the saints of all history and all the followers of Jesus' names written in heaven, the God who will make all things right, Jesus the mediator, the sprinkled blood. That's who we come to. And I invite you every time you see a picture that just takes your breath away of a magnificent mountain, let it be a pointer to the truest mountain of all, Mount Zion. Wow. Now, why is this essential? I already gave you part of the answer to that. Because the people to whom he was writing this letter of Hebrews had a Mount Sinai perspective of God, and, and as do we. It invades our perception too much. And they needed their perception shifted. And we need our perception shifted. But there's something else. It's the very next word that's going to come in verse 25. You know that Hebrews is filled with warnings. They come like a drumbeat all the way through the book. Warning after warning. Hold on. Don't turn away. Don't harden your hearts. The list goes on. And now in verse 25, we have the final warning in the book of Hebrews. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. See that you do not refuse him. There is so much at stake here. The warning goes on. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, referring to Mount Sinai, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. This is heavy-duty stuff. And I wouldn't be alone if I, said, if I told you uh, that I'm always uncomfortable when I read these warnings. But, and this is, the, this is why, I wanted to give you the two mountains today that the author gives us, that the Spirit gives us. The way you hear this warning will be fundamentally different based on your perception of God. If you think 
God is like Mount Doom. If you think God is defined by Mount Sinai, when you hear this word, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, you're simply going to shake in terror. But that's not the mountain we've come to. This is the mountain we've come to. The living God who makes all things new, who makes all things right. The living God where the, where the angels are celebrating and all the saints of all history are there with them. The place of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood. He's the one who says to us, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Now, I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me on this. And I want to say, when I have a picture of the living God described under the category of Mount Zion, there is not a drop of anything in me that wants to refuse him. I love the idea of this God, the picture of this God. I want to listen to everything he has to say. But when my mind drifts back to a Mount Doom kind of perspective of God, then I find terror rising in me. It's not where he wants us. This affects everything. He goes on to say that at that time, his voice shook the earth. Mount Sinai shook. But now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Maybe like me, you think of the, the Messiah, Handel's Messiah, quoting from Haggai. Just a little while, I will shake the heavens, the earth, the sea, the dry land, all nations, I'll shake. And again, if your picture is Mount Doom, Mount Sinai, that's a scary thought that he's going to shake the earth. But if you're coming to the living God, well then you keep reading and you hear the rest of the story. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. This shaking is the most wonderful thing because it tears away from us all the stuff we cling to that is just dust and leaves the best of the best. It leaves the living God, the celebrating angels, the saints of all history, the God who makes things right, Jesus of the new covenant, the sprinkled blood. That's what remains. Friends, the shaking will be fantastic for everyone who is looking to this God. And then there's last one last piece. He says, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And our view of God as we understand this passage, makes all the difference. Some years ago, Catherine and I were going through what 
as we would look back now in our many years, was our most difficult stretch of life. One thing after another after another went wrong. It seemed like everything was falling apart. And just when we said it can't get any worse than this, it did. It was awful. I went into a terrible personal darkness that lasted for multiple years. At the depth of the darkness, Catherine and I were praying together. And she wasn't trying to teach her husband anything. She was just praying. But God used her prayer. As she said, Lord, I thank you that that which is most important is secure. I thank you that that which is most important is secure. And I heard her pray that. And I thought, that's right. All this other stuff is going to pass. But belonging to God, being part of his his kingdom being forgiven by Jesus Christ, that remains forever. And that was the moment that I began to move out of the darkness into the light when I saw the truth of this passage, that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Each of you who rest in the name of Jesus, this is the God to whom you are coming. And if you're here and you don't yet trust in Jesus, this is the God to whom you're invited to come. He wants to embrace you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the God who makes all things new, all things right. You are the God of the sprinkled blood and the new covenant. You are the God of the celebrating angels. You are the God of your, the people who've looked to you for all these millennia. Oh God, thank you that because of you, because of your promises, that this is the kind of mountain to which we come. And thank you that because of you and your promises, we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Amen.